Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of A-Sides. It has been a long time. I have not done one of these interviews in a minute, and I was very excited to have the chance to talk with legendary drummer from a legendary band, ladies and gentlemen, 10 years afters, Rick Lee. One of these days, boy, gonna see my baby, gonna see my baby, down the All right, man. Well, hey, Rick. Uh, really excited to talk to you. And uh, I know I understand you guys have a uh, 10 years after has a deluxe edition of your last you guys' last album, right? It came out in 2017, The Sting of the Tail. Well, it was it was the last studio album, yeah, uh, Sting in the Tail. Okay. We did a subsequent live album called Naturally Live, and what they've done is they've taken four tracks from that and added them to the Sting in the Tail and called it the deluxe version. Oh, right on. So is it so it's just certain songs from that, is it, or is it the whole record combined Say again, with it? Sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Say again. Is it the is it just bits of the the live record you said or the whole live record paired with it? No, no. The 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 studio album is a sting in the tail, and then they've added four tracks from our subsequent live album, Naturally Alive. There's just four tracks from that. Oh, four tracks. Okay. Uh, one of which is uh, a live version of "I'd Love to Change the World." Oh, right on. Yeah. Are you guys uh, planning on getting back out and doing any? touring once uh all this chaos kind of well we'd love no we'd love we'd love to uh tour but uh with the covid situation it's not possible at the moment i talked to uh our american agent and to our european agent and they're both saying 2022 is probably the earliest mm. yeah I, I it's weird because it's like i see some some places, some bands in other countries and stuff are doing little tours, but it just seems like it's kind of, I don't know, <laughs> kind of sporadic. Like some are, some aren't. I know we ain't doing much here in the well, states, we, so yeah, we can't we can't do anything. Uh, we can't move in England. I mean, uh, the four of us. I live a hundred and thirty odd miles from uh, from the other guys. Um, uh, and they, you know, we, we can't, we're not allowed to travel out of our own areas. So um, it's just not possible to get anything done. But what we're going to try and do is do some uh, some um, online recording that we can use for live streams. And we're thinking of uh, the, I was talking to the marketing and uh, um, social media ladies today at Deco Records, that's D-E-K-O. Um, and they... <clears throat> They're talking about doing maybe some taking some bed tracks from our live album and then have people play along on their guitars or keyboards or whatever they want to do. We'll have a little competition 
um, and then they can get to chat with one of us or all four of us or or whatever. We we're not we haven't got the absolute formula sorted out yet, but I think it'll be be pretty exciting and quite interesting. Oh, okay, so like just fan like fans would you know do a live a Facebook live thing or something where they're playing along with yeah with that, your guys' tracks. And... Yeah, they can play along. That's right. They can play along with the tracks that we laid down for for the live album. Yeah. All right on. Yeah, man, it's, you know, obviously it's really kind of different. We're all in a weird situation. Everybody's having to get kind of creative to, even more creative to be creative. (laughs) I mean, it's a good time to be creative and make a record, but, you know. Have there been any talks of you guys doing, like trying to work on another record, like writing via, you know? Yeah, well, we could... That that's not so difficult. We can do that because we can like make notes on our on our phones and send it to each other. Uh, you know, we can record stuff on on WhatsApp and do it that way. So the the, the possibility for that are a lot a lot greater than uh, than making anything larger than that for uh, a sort of public consumption. Yeah. Um, one of the problems for uh, I, I mean, you know, with phones is is the quality of, of the sound. Um, I'm going to invest in some, uh, I used to have a little home recording set up years ago, but I don't have that anymore, but I'm, I'm going to invest in some, uh, equipment that I can, I can use with the laptop or with my, uh, desktop. So, and maybe get some better quality stuff on that. So that, uh, certainly at least Marcus and I can do that. And then Marcus can work on recording, uh, Colin and, and Chick. Colin, Colin is the bass player. Colin Hodgkinson and Chick Churchill, of course, the keyboard player from the old days. Right. Right on, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that last record, A Sting in the Tail, um, I mean, that's a great sounding record. You know, it sounds, it's got energy, and obviously you guys don't want to come right off of that and have something stale, you know. I mean, <laughs> don't want to yeah. settle for just doing yeah. like a little everything in the box and i mean it's it's tough to get to get uh records that that sound that that good just off of a out of garage band or something you know so yeah well that's yeah yeah that's very kind of you i appreciate that we we worked hard on that we we wanted to make a a radio friendly record because uh a lot of those things after stuff in the past have been too damn long to be played on radio nowadays right um you know, a classic example of that is um, I Can't Keep From Crying sometimes. Um, on the first album we did in 1967, it was four minutes long. When we recorded live at the Fillmore East, this is all with Alvin, of course, um, it was 19 minutes long. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, you can't get that played on radio nowadays. Uh, in the early days of FM, you could. I remember doing a, a, an interview with Tom Donahue, a famous DJ in San Francisco many years ago. And uh, I went into the studio. He, he was a very, very friendly man. And he said, um, we're gonna, we'll talk for a little bit. He said, no, we'll just play the whole of the first side of your album. Well, that was 30 minutes worth. Um, it was the Undead album. It was the second album we made, which was a live album. And he just played the whole thing. And I, I, I thought, I can't believe this, you know. And I said, well, what do you do about the advertisers? He said, oh, the hell with them. They can wait until uh, five minutes before the hour, and then we'll play all the ads together. 
Yeah. He was kind of wild. But, you know, that's the way it was in the 60s. You know, that, that's, uh, that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, it'd be cool if somebody, you know, kind of went off the cuff and did something like that now and everything's so formulated now on the radio that... Uh, well, that's right. So, yeah, man, I mean... Yeah, and, spe- and, of course... But- Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say the first thing that would happen is that the, the, the advertisers would pull their, uh, their their spots and there'd be all sorts of problems. People would lose sponsorship, you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, man, I mean, speaking of the 60s, you know, you guys, I mean, back Space and Time came out, what, late 60s, 68, 69? And well, it's 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 interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, it's the 50th anniversary this year, I think, in October. And oh, Christmas okay. Records have the catalog back again, and they're uh, they're planning to do something a bit special with it. Quite what I don't know, but they're, they're, but they've actually done a really good job on the back catalog since they got hold of it a couple of years ago, um, and they've put a lot of stuff out in vinyl. Um, Spacing time is it was on vinyl in the early days, but they've repackaged it and made it look really good. And I think they've remastered the uh, they've remastered it for vinyl, put it on better vinyl than it was in the early days. So uh, that'll be interesting. And also in uh, June or July this year, they're, they're planning to release the the six tracks that we recorded at Woodstock, which I don't think have been out before. So that'll become a bit of a collector's item. Oh, wow. So we, we, aside from the fact that we can't tour, we've got a lot going on for ourselves this year. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reissue thing, the whole resurgence of vinyl alone, I mean, that's just really, you know, I love it. I mean, I've been collecting vinyl for a while now, and, uh, you know, it's cool that, like, everything is getting reissued on vinyl right now. It's great, because when I first started yeah, collecting well, vinyl, like, 15 years ago... Some stuff, it was like you just couldn't find it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or you had to hunt well, it down I, and try um, to find an old copy. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, I said, or you got you had to try to hunt it down, you know? You had to try to find a original copy of it, you know, somewhere used and in good condition. Yeah. Which a lot of yes. great records are yeah. few and far between, but then now you get, you know, they're just, man, they're pumping everything out, and it sounds great, so... Yeah, well, the vinyl. I think the vinyl is is better produced now than it was. You know, it's a it's a lot better quality, um, and also I think the people that buy vinyl w- w- won't touch it unless it's really good quality. Um, we carry it on the road with us, and it, it's a little difficult because it's heavy. Right. But um, you know, we sell. I mean, we we did Sweden 2019. We finished off the year with a tour of Sweden. We did four days over there because uh, there's only four major cities really and um it was incredible the amount of vinyl was shifted was just staggering it really was um and the crowds hadn't seen us for many many years so we sold out everywhere we played um and the promoter straight away said i want you back again next year you, you know we've got to do this again so and then of course we can't because uh, we had the dates in the book but we had to move them all to 2022 right yeah, well, that's a bummer that, you know, it's nice to know that everything's kind of officially being put on hold till 2022. Because, I mean, a lot of us, I've had a lot of conversations with people where we're discussing whether there's going to be anything this summer, you know. 
hoping that maybe by then some shows will happen. And I mean, some bands are are posting stuff on Facebook and stuff like they are going to be playing this summer. Like those dates that were scheduled for last summer are now scheduled for summer of 21. But I mean, <laughs> if you guys are being told it won't be till 2022, then uh, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on it. That um, the problem isn't isn't people wanting to go. It, the problem is that if the promoters have to socially distance, then the the difficulty is to to make money on the gigs. You know, uh, well, worse than that is is not to lose money. Is is the uh, the question. Um, and I know some of the promoters that our American agents been talking to are saying, well, we'd love to do some dates, but we just don't know if we're going to be here, you know, because uh, you can't, if you can't run them at a profit, then you, you can't, you can't stay in business, you know? Yeah. Although I understand that Live Nation have put out a thing and said that they're, they're, they're getting it together that they can do shows, which will be socially distanced and that they will, they will, uh, They'll be able to, to at least break even uh, or make money on them. So, so maybe there's a little bit of light in the tunnel. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, you know, people miss live music, and I obviously a lot of people are going to the the live streams and whatnot, you know. But that's just not the same. Like that. I mean, me personally, that stuff holds my attention for about twenty minutes or twenty seconds. Not. <laughs> I you know yeah. I can hardly make it through yeah. a whole song sitting there holding my phone in my hand watching somebody strum an acoustic guitar or whatever even if it's somebody I'm a big fan of it's just really hard to it's just not the same. Well, we're, we're considering making a video if once we can get out of our houses here, but um, we would need to go to Germany to do that. So there, there's a, a an immediate problem there in the traveling. Um, and also, we would want to do it in front of a live audience, but if the audience is socially distanced, then the question is how do you how do you uh, how do you make it look good and as exciting as the ten years after gig is normally when you've got fewer people there? I mean, we would invite people that are fans of ours, obviously, but even so, and they would be they were very enthusiastic. But it's not the same if you've got 150 people, for example, in a club. When you could have seven hundred or eight hundred, you know the the difference is just phenomenal um, in terms of reaction and the way the video would look and so on. So we've got all those problems to deal with. Also, the fact that how do we how do we cover the costs of making the video and and getting over there to do it and so on and so forth. So um, there's some serious considerations in uh, in trying to put that together. Is the reason for Germany being the location because of the because of the uh, the version of "I'd Love to Change the World" that was recorded there? Would that be the video you're no, shooting for? No, you no. So, I'm, I'm sorry. Say the second bit again. Oh, I just wondered if that was the reason that you guys were wanting to like if it was you were shooting a video for that live version of that song that was recorded in Germany. No, no. The idea would be to do the whole set again. Oh, so um, like a live stream. A, oh, yeah, okay. but not not to use it as a live stream. To use it as a video, so that we could take individual songs if necessary for promotional items. We could use them for live streams. 
we could use them for, I mean, we could use the whole thing for all sorts of uh, variations. The reason for Germany is that all our equipment lives over there. We, we virtually, most of the year, um, when we're not doing America, we, we we commute to Europe. It's so easy and so quick for us. Um, so our sound man is in Germany. He's he's actually German. Uh, our backline man is German. Our merchandising lady is German. All our equipment lives there. Our merchandise is made in Germany. Um, and then we can travel anywhere from there, from Germany. I mean, Holland is, is next door. France is next door. Austria, Switzerland are next door. We can do all of those. Well, you can even get up to Scandinavia easily. So it, it's it's in a sense, it's like touring different states of America. You know, they're, they're all pretty close. Yeah. So that would be the reason for doing it, because we would have the facilities there. We would have the crew. We'd have our equipment, which stays in Germany. We don't bring it home with us when we tour. Um, we can also, what we want to try and do is make ourselves a little bit greener by not flying. And we'll use trains in future to get across there because we can get a train from London to Paris or to Brussels and then uh, get a train to somewhere to wherever we might be playing and then hook up with the crew when we when we get there so that's what we're looking at in uh, in the in the future for touring so there's, there's several you know there's a lot of very good and very big reasons for doing it in uh, in Europe all right man i got you yeah, I don't know why I was thinking music video. After I asked that question, I kind of thought, well, I guess it wouldn't make much sense to shoot a live video to a live song if you'd be lip syncing over a live track, and it'd make more sense to shoot a fresh video. So I don't really know why that was my thought, but yeah, no, we well actually, funny enough, because you're not far off the mark there. We we um we did do a live streaming uh for for a charity concert that was put on in in New York by uh, um. A friend of mine and a, um, a multimillionaire there that has a uh, a foundation which raises money to help people and, and this one was to help COVID sufferers and also um, prostate cancer victims and um, we were asked to provide a, a video of I'd love to change the world uh, with the new lineup. Well, the only one we had was was a, a thing that was shot in uh, France in uh, 2016. But the sound was straight into the into the video camera. There was there was no no recording mix as such. So what what we did then was uh, Marcus actually edited uh, Marcus Bonfanti, sorry, our, our, our guitar player singer. Um, he edited the sound from the live album that I was talking about to that video because and and he did a great job. Um, but there were still parts of it that were out of sync and so on. So. We just thought it would be nice to completely re-record the thing and always have. Uh, you know, it's a very popular song, that. Um, so to have a, a really good top-class video and sound of that track would be very, very useful. And then we thought maybe we could edit in some news um, items from the COVID situation and make it into sort of a... Uh, what is it? A, well, a, a, a modern-day sort of thesis on, on what, 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 what's happened, you know, it'd be, become a bit of historical value. Right. Well, cool, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, one question I had for you, cause I just always like asking everyone this, um, I guess it's kind of like a, 
two or three part question, but what were some of your like musical influences, like your favorite bands back in the day? And are there any bands that you're really into now as far as, you know, modern stuff? Well, the, my early, early, most of us actually uh, in the original band, you know, Alvin, Leo, Chick and Lee, our, our influences then were, were, were out of the jazz period, you know, the 40s and 50s. So my original influences were Gene Cooper, Buddy Rich, um, Art Blakey, Alvin Stoller, and then a bit later, Joe Morello, um, and people like that. Uh, Chick's influences were um, uh, Jimmy Smith, uh, Brother Jack McDuff, um, uh, who was the other guy, Oscar Peterson, piano player. Alvin's influences range from, uh, first of all, Scotty Moore, Elvis's guitarist, to um, Wes Montgomery, um, uh, 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 John Lee Hooker, um, Lead Belly, you know, um, uh, who's the other guy? Oh, sorry, struggling for names here. Um, and then Leo's influences were Scott LaFaro, who was the bass player with Bill Evans, and Ray Brown, of course, was a, a sort of monster bass player in, in, in the jazz days. Um, and then we kind of all moved on a bit. Um, Alvin and Leo were, were, when I first joined them, were doing songs by Ray Charles, uh, Bo Diddley, uh, Chuck Berry, um, all of that stuff, which I wasn't doing. We, the band I was in was called the Mansfield. Well, I was in a couple of bands before that. In fact, if you want to know the history of that, I've, I've just written my autobiography, which oh, is out, wow. and I'm I'm working doing interviews on that, which is called From Headstock to. Oh, it's okay. Um, <laughs> from Headstocks to Woodstock, um, and that's my from my birth in Mansfield, which is a coal mining area. Uh, through to Woodstock. Um, and so I, I kind of, I've outlined all the different people there. But when I, as I say, when I joined Alvin and Leo, um, they were playing things that I really had not really heard of. You know, I'd been into the Beatles and the Hollies and, and all those early 60s groups. I mean, one of my drum heroes was Bobby Elliott, the drummer with the Hollies, who he was absolutely superb. I, I mean, the Ringo Starr was fantastic. You know, so... Um, that's where I was at, and then they were introducing me to to these um, these other uh, what I would have called obscure people. And in fact, I got the audition with Alvin and Leo because, when I did the audition. Rather, I I got the job because I could play the Chuck Berry rhythm for Sweet Little Sixteen. So um, <laughs> yeah. Alvin, I remember Alvin turning around to me saying, "Hey, man." Um, you're the first drummer we because they had about four or five drummers that night. He said, "You're the only drummer that, that that we've come across that can play that rhythm. Uh, if you'd like to join the band, we'd love to have you." <laughs> so I got it on the strength of one rhythm. Yeah. Um, you know. So, so that uh, you know that that's what happened with us all. Uh, I then was influenced, of course, by Ginger Baker, who played with Jack Bruce in in a band called the Graham Bond Organization. Graham Bond was a was a Hammond organ player. Uh, he also played uh, alto sax at the same time, and uh, there was a tenor sax player called uh, Dick Hextall Smith who went on to play with John Mayall for most of the rest of his career. So you know we were picking up those influences as well. That was all happening around '65. 
So, um, and then we became 10 years after in 67. Nice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting just to hear all the different influences and stuff. And I always, I always love hearing just the stories of how different artists were influenced by other players and everything. And it's cool to, to hear a diverse, you know, I mean, you got, you rattled off a lot of names there, you know, and a lot of different genres too. I mean, it wasn't like it was just all blues or all rock and there was all the jazz players and stuff that influenced you guys and obviously that meshes into a unique sound and you know probably a lot of bands back then were coming from you know a lot of different backgrounds like that and maybe is why you know <laughs> looking back i mean the 70s especially there just seems to be a really diverse amount of bands you know what i mean like there was a lot of bands, a lot of really good bands, and a lot of different sounds, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like that was the the decade where there was definitely just tons of different styles, all interwoven, you know, into this into these different bands. And um, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, a, I think I think Bill Graham had a big influence on that as well when running the Fillmore West and the Fillmore East because the, the he used to put three bands a night on and I mean uh, as an example we we played you know one time at Fillmore West we were with Creed and Clearwater another time we were with Ike and Tina Turner another time with the Buddy Rich Orchestra you know um, uh, another time with the Butterfield Blues Band uh, and Fleetwood Mac, the early band with Peter Green in it, um, and then like Fillmore East as well was 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 diverse again. You know, we we did one with um, the Staple Singers were were the opening shot. We were the middle band, and Janis Joplin was the headliner. Um, you know, so I think I think that had a lot to do with with influences to us because you were playing with all all these diff different bands you know so you were picking up stuff from what they were doing but the audiences were too the audiences were getting uh, uh, across the board exposure to to what was going on musically at that time right yeah you don't hear too often of you know a lineup like that you know Staple. Well, there were, as I say, they were quite. Yeah, they were quite disparate in a way. You know, it, some of the the things that Bill put together, because it was his thing. He wanted to introduce the young audiences into into the the diverse music that was going on. Um, you know, nowadays when you when you tend to get, it's probably just two acts on a bill, and they're very very similar usually. You know the, the the packaging, and a lot of that comes from the record companies because they want to package their new acts with their existing hit acts. You know, um, so a lot, a lot of that, and you get you get bands that sound alike. You know, right. you were asking me about current influences as well. I yeah. mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Taylor Hawkins. You know, with the Foo Fighters. Oh, well, yeah. and Dave Grohl, of course. Yeah, it's monster. Yeah, you know, so that that's a yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say he's an influence, but I'm certainly impressed with the with the way he, he well, the way the both of them play and 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 perform. Right. You know, it's a terrific band. Uh, <clears throat> um, at one time, I was quite my my daughter 
who is uh, 29 now, um, she was very much into Nickelback. And we went to see Nickelback in uh, in Sheffield. They were a hell of a band. And the drummer with them, I can't remember his name, but he's a hell of a player. Um, you know, so, so I, yeah, I picked up on different things throughout time. Uh, I've been recently, I've been... Um, Purely because I've I've wanted to change the uh, the way I'm holding the sticks and playing the the, the, the snare drum recently, and uh, I needed to change the grip. And I've been I was watching uh, Steve Smith video. Uh, I think he's a consummate drummer. You know, the guy that played with um, uh, Journey, and wow. then he has his own band, Vital Information. You know, yeah. He's, He's a, he's a hell, of, a hell of a player. To me, in a sense, he's the body Richard today because he's got the technique and the musicality. Hmm. Um, so you know, I'm 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 looking around all the time. I I, I you know I go on YouTube and then, oh what's this and I'll spot something and then I'll I'll get into watching that and you you, you know to be perfectly honest, you try and pinch a few things, <laughs> you right. pinch a few ideas, yeah, and then try and. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Alexis Corner. I don't think well, I have. Alexis Corner was what I call the the grandfather of British blues, the um, the uh, sorry, the godfather of British blues. The grandfather was uh, was John Mayall. So uh, Alexis was there first. Alexis Corner played at the Marquee Club in London, which is where we made our first breakthrough, and his support band was the Rolling Stones. Because he'd seen them somewhere in another part of London and thought they had potential, and uh, in a sense he <clears throat> he groomed them up and gave them their first break at the at the Marquee Club. Uh, he subsequently fired them because they were getting getting more popular than he was. So um, so they they had to then go and play elsewhere in London to uh, to continue their career. But you know. Um, Alexis once said to me, I, I became quite friendly with him, he's a one hell of a nice guy. I knew a lot about a lot of things. And he said, uh, you know, he said, what, what, what are your influences? And I said, oh, well, I, I don't know what you mean by that. He said, well, what you need to do is you take, to get, a, get your influences, you listen to your favorite artists, and, and then you, you, you pinch things, you, you steal things, you know. But what you do with that is you then take what you've stolen and you turn it into something that's yours. So in other words, you, you learn things from other people, but then you put a twist on it, which makes it yours. Hmm. And I've never forgotten that. I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that we all do, whether we want to admit it or not, I guess. So <laughs> you might as well. It's it's a little bit more refreshing when you when you hear someone like that just say it, you know. Rather than trying to be all yeah. pretentious and act like they invented everything they've ever yeah. done, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, I mean, I I would love to play. I mean, I I did some very poor copies of what Buddy Rich did, you know. But I would never be him or be able to play like him, you know. But the basic ideas and the techniques I I I, I took and then transformed into what I do now. Um, and I think that's what, what every player does, really. You know, I heard an interesting thing yesterday. I was doing an interview, um, and this the guy I was talking to said that 
Eddie Van Halen used to play I'm, I'm Going Home because he was a great big fan of 10 Years After. And I never knew that. I don't think any of us did, you know. Oh, wow. But uh, apparently he was uh, was a big fan of ours, which was nice to know. Well, yeah, I think that would, yeah. (laughs) I don't think there's any better compliment, you know, really. So Yeah, terrific. I mean, that's pretty nice. No, I was gobsmacked with that. Yeah. And I don't want to keep you at all. Uh, You know, I really appreciate you calling and talking. Um, My pleasure. Thank you for your time. Hopefully we can maybe do it again. For sure. Here